The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, October 17th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. In tonight's news, the Dane County Board of Supervisors hosts a final public hearing tomorrow on its 2024 budget. A local hiker returns from a 2,600-mile trek and surpasses her fundraising goal to support survivors of sexual assault. And in the second half, UW Madison sends out a survey featuring transphobic language. The North Saw Wet Owl steps into the spotlight. And the Wisconsin Historical Society is still serving the public during a transitional time. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Money keeps coming in from prominent members of Wisconsin's congressional delegation as they prepare to defend their seats in 2024. Republican U.S. Representatives Brian Stile and Derek Von Orden and Democratic U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin are all seen as potentially vulnerable in their re-election bids next year. But new fundraising reports released over the weekend show all three have formidable amounts of campaign cash, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Both Style and Van Orden outraised their Democratic opponents by hundreds of thousands of dollars in the first and third districts, respectively. Style raised $670,000 between July and the end of September and has $3.2 million in cash on hand. Van Orden raised about $865,000 over this period of time and has more than $1.4 million on hand. Baldwin, meanwhile, is still waiting for a major Republican challenger to enter the race, but she's using the time to build her campaign chest. She reported a haul of $3.1 million in the quarter and ended last month with $6.8 million. A Republican-controlled committee in the state legislature is blocking raises for UW system employees as part of an ongoing campaign to end diversity programs at UW schools. The legislature's Employment Relations Committee voted today to approve a 6% raise for thousands of state employees over two years, but they excluded UW employees, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who chairs this committee, said the pay bumps are being withheld unless the UW system eliminates diversity, equity, and inclusion positions and programming on campuses. Voss has called DEI programs an attempt to indoctrinate students using taxpayer money. Today's vote is part of a months-long effort by Voss and other Republicans to leverage to, to use the leverage of state money to end DEI programs at the state's universities. After the committee vote, UW System President Jay Rothman called withholding the raises, quote, unprecedented. Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, called the move, quote, as dumb as it comes. Elsewhere at the Capitol today, Governor Evers tore into Wisconsin Senate Republicans for voting to reject several of his appointees to state boards. The state Senate has the authority to approve or reject the governor's appointees. Today, they chose to reject several of Evers' picks, including four members of the State Natural Resources Board and one on the Wisconsin Elections Commission. In a press release, Evers called it, quote, insanity to fire qualified appointees and accused Republicans of playing politics. Other agencies impacted include the Wisconsin Medical Examining Board and the Governor's Council on Domestic Abuse. Evers immediately named replacements for the positions, but they will still need eventual approval from the state Senate. Two more UW System branch campuses will stop offering classes in person, potentially signaling their impending closure. UW announced today that face-to-face classes at UW-Milwaukee-Washington County and UW-Oshkosh-Fond du Lac will end by June 2024, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. 
The university system also announced the full closure of UW-Platteville, Richland, a campus that faced a similar announcement about the end of in-person instruction less than a year ago. Speaking to reporters, System President Jay Rothman said it's time for UW to, quote, realign our branch campuses to current market realities. Rothman added that the decisions were not entirely based on finances. Instead, he said two-year branch campuses are increasingly unable to compete because prospective students prefer online courses or four-year schools. The news comes with layoffs for over 200 staff positions at UW Oshkosh, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The new, this news comes days after Rothman announced a rebrand of the UW system, now called Universities of Wisconsin, in order to highlight its, its quote, constellation of 13 universities from around the state. The man who allegedly brought guns to the state capitol twice in one day looking for the governor has been charged with a misdemeanor. The Associated Press reports that Joshua Pleznik was charged in Madison this week with carrying a firearm in a public building. Pleznik was arrested October 4th after he entered the Capitol building carrying a loaded handgun and requested to see Governor Tony Evers. Evers was not there at the time. Pleznik was released the same day after posting bail and returned to the Capitol that night with a semi-automatic rifle. The building was closed, but he again demanded to see the governor and was taken into custody a second time. Pleznik reportedly told police he had no intention of using the weapons, but wanted to speak to Evers about men facing domestic abuse. Need to find food or help paying rent? The United Way of Dane County, along with seven other centers across the state, has unveiled a new app to help find available help near you. That smartphone app, called 211 Wisconsin, connects you with health and human services service agencies in Dane County and across the state. It has help for finding food, housing, and shelter, help paying phone, internet, and utility bills, tax assistance, literary assistant, lit- literacy assistance, and many other services. A new evaluation of a Madison Metropolitan School District program shows it's successful helping students get to college and stay there. The AVID TOPS program is a partnership between Madison Public Schools and the Boys and Girls Club of Dane County that combines academic support with activities outside the classroom. A UW School of Education evaluation of AVID TOPS released this week shows high school students who participated in the program were 17% more likely to enroll in post-secondary education, and they were 12% more likely to still be enrolled after three years. AVID TOPS began in 2007 as a pilot program and has grown to almost 1,000 students. At a press conference unveiling the evaluation results, Boys and Girls Club leaders said they hope to create an endowment to expand the program in the future. The number of tickets issued for violating parking rules during snowstorms in Madison has plummeted over the past decade, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Last winter, the city of Madison issued nearly 1,600 tickets for violating alternate side parking rules and parking in snow emergency zones. Compare that to the 26,784 tickets issued during the 2012-2013 winter just a decade ago. That's a major drop in tickets by about 94% over a decade. And it comes with a drop in funding for a city also struggling with limited options for raising revenue and evening out its budget. A decade ago, those thousands of tickets generated a tidy sum of over $730,000. This past winter, though, snow parking tickets generated just under $87,000. And now on to today's top stories. The Dane County Board of Supervisors is hosting a public hearing tomorrow on its 2024 executive budget proposal. It could be the last time you can weigh in on the county's fundraising priorities. 
WRT News producer Faye Parks has the details. Earlier this month, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced his 2024 budget proposal, totaling nearly $900 million. It's his final budget proposal as executive, having recently announced his plans for an early retirement this spring. And while Executive Parisi moves on after more than two decades in the role, his successor will be the one to carry out the approved projects from his 2024 proposal. Some of the most expensive items include over $242 million for Dane County's social service safety net, with $2.5 million going to a brand new grant program that would help frontline service agencies recruit and retain their mental health emergency caregivers. A related proposal would spend an additional $1.5 million on a new homeless shelter, funded in partnership with the City of Madison. The county has already spent $6 million on the men's shelter, located on Madison's east side. According to the budget proposal, more recent estimates show that costs will likely exceed what the city and county have already raised. Nearly $11 million would go to local food pantries, with $6 million allotted to Dane County's pandemic-era farm-to-food bank program. But perhaps the most unusual item requests $21 million for the Henry Vilas Zoo. While located in Madison, the zoo is a county facility. The $21 million would kickstart the first phase of the Heart of the Zoo project at Henry Vilas Zoo. The bulk of that $21 million would go to replacing an existing rhino barn with indoor and outdoor space for Vilas's giraffes. The facility would also be equipped with cutting-edge training resources. Joseph D'Arcangelo is the zoo's deputy director. That's one of the most important things is to showcase how we care for animals, especially giraffe, in a modern-day facility. The giraffe enclosure would be the first of a series of new exhibits to the zoo, known as the Edge of Africa. But the giraffe enclosure is also needed to keep up with new space requirements in order to keep the zoo's accreditation from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, scheduled for renewal in 2024. Deputy Director Dark Angelo says that he expects the board to approve the requested funds for the new giraffe enclosure. And we feel very confident that not only the county board, but the county executives and, and the community uh, truly support the direction that the zoo is going in. The request comes amid a turbulent time for the zoo, which was cited for animal welfare violations from federal regulators last year. Both were related to the treatment of capybaras, which Dark Angelo says they've since overhauled. Leadership at the zoo has also faced other recent controversies, like a settlement for the alleged sexual assault from the director of the zoo in 2018. And last year, reporting from the Wisconsin State Journal uncovered allegations of a racist and hostile work environment and other animal neglect and mistreatment. That reporting sparked an independent investigation commissioned by the Dane County Board, which found no evidence of discrimination, hostile work environment, or violations of the Dane County Employee Handbook but did recommend solutions to improve the zoo's general work environment, culture, and animal welfare. It also found evidence of isolated issues with animal treatment that were being resolved. The Dane County Board of Supervisors is holding its only public hearing on the budget tomorrow, starting at 6 p.m. You can attend either in person or virtually, and it's likely your last chance to register your support for or dissent with specific items. Once board committees have presented amendments to the 2024 budget, it will move forward to the entire board and is expected to be adopted in mid-November. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. This past summer, Madison-based hiker Emily Burdett backpacked the more than 2,600 miles that make up the Pacific Crest Trail. Along the way, she fundraised for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault, an organization that supports sexual assault service providers across the state. 
WORT news producer Faye Parks got an update from Burdette earlier this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Emily. Thank you for having me. So I was so pleased to hear from you again. How was your trip? Oh, my goodness. It was absolutely amazing. Finishing the Pacific Crest Trail taught me so much about myself and the kind of life I want to lead. And I just saw so many amazing views, met the most amazing people. I couldn't have asked for anything better. And so to clarify, you started in April. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I started April 16th and I walked until October 4th. So it was quite a journey, uh, quite a long time. It took a little bit longer than I initially expected, but I I don't have any regrets taking slower days or an extra zero day here or there. It was really all part of the journey, and it worked out so well, so nicely. So that was a little less than six months around there, right? Yeah, it was a long time being out in the trail, sleeping on the ground, sleeping in a tent, all that stuff. So I saw this summer, and it actually kind of worried me that there was some pretty severe weather on the West Coast. Did that affect your track at all? Oh, it sure did. I think BCT hikers this year got a little bit of everything between snowstorms and blizzards to heavy rain and thunderstorms, hail, forest fires and smoke inhalation to even some people dealing with a hurricane, the effects of a hurricane. We kind of got a mix of it all. And I think for me, some of the worst weather I received was actually right at the end of the hike. In the last six days, I was hiking in the Sierras and this snowstorm came in and it ended up being like a two-day blizzard. And it caught all of us kind of off guard. We didn't necessarily have the right gear or the right clothes for it. So it really, we finished um, our PCT trip with quite an adventure on that one. I also got stuck dealing with some forest fires up in northern Washington in the North Cascades. There's actually one kind of scary moment where there was ash raining on me, like actual fire ash. And I had an SOS Garmin device where I could check how close I was to the fires. And I was like 8.9 miles away from one. And it was northeast of me. And I was hiking northeast at that time. So it wasn't exactly comforting. Even though everything worked out totally all right, it was just kind of a scary few days with all the smoke there. And then with like hail and windstorms as well. I was with somebody who had their tent break in um, a windstorm up on a mountain. That's always a little bit scary. Long story short, we got a a mix of it all, for sure. I was wondering when you mentioned your Garmin device, is there some kind of notification system or something from the National Park Service to let people know that certain areas, you know, shouldn't shouldn't be visited or more dangerous? Um, Or is that sort of up to you to check in? It's really up to you to check in. There is a service that you can text for forest fires, and I believe it's just an automated message that tells you how many fires are maybe within like a 50-mile radius of you based on your GPS location and how close you are and how many acres that fire is and if it's contained or not. But for the most part, especially with all other types of weather, like the blizzard. I got stuck in, that's all up to you to check. But that can be a bit hard when you're out in the backcountry and you don't have access to internet and that kind of thing. You pretty much just have to wake up and see what the day is going to bring for the most part. 
So you mentioned keeping an eye on the GPS, on the weather. What kind of adjustments did you have to make as you were moving forward? I think the biggest thing was just being more flexible. So if I planned on being in a trail town in three days, let's say for my resupply, and then being in the next one four days after that, if I knew about a big storm coming in, for example, maybe I would take a couple days off in that next trail town to kind of sit it out, which could push me back, push me off my schedule, whatever. But I think just being flexible uh, when you know about that kind of weather coming in is really important and something that I kind of had to adjust to because I definitely started with a mindset of I'm going to go as hard as I can every single day, every day. Uh, and the reality of that is it just sometimes isn't possible. I think flexibility in general is actually became really important on this trail I slipped around the Sierras this year, so I didn't do a continuous hike in the sense from walking on a, a continuous pathway, I mean. So when I got about 700 miles in and finished the desert section, I just didn't feel like I had the snow skills, the mountaineering skills to walk through the Sierras. It was kind of at a point where I was too early for the water crossings. The water crossings were extremely high at that point, but too late for snow bridges, so they patches of snow where you could walk over the river crossing. Some people were starting to post hole through, like meaning the snow bridges were starting to crack. And so I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. And that took a lot of planning and logistics to flip around the Sierras and then, of course, to come back to them later in the trip at the end to, to finish them. And then the other thing is just flexibility when it comes to like the social aspect of the trail. I said I felt very much like I wouldn't, I didn't want to give in to social situations that would keep me in town for an extra day, let's say, or for a day in general. But I sort of learned um, halfway through the trip, especially with some good friends of mine, that it's really important to embrace the idea of smiles over miles, which I know is kind of a kitschy phrase, but I, I really think it's true where it's like, is what you're doing right now, trying to walk, let's say, more than 30 miles a day, is that really making you happy? Or would it be really nice to maybe take a half day in town and treat yourself to a hot coffee and take an easy day out, something like that? So overall, I think flexibility is one of the biggest things that I have to change about my, my mindset going in. So you mentioned a lot of stress during the trek. Do you have any fun anecdotes? Did you come across any interesting people? Oh, my goodness. I met some of the most interesting people ever. It was like a whole new world um, just in terms of people living all different types of lifestyles that i really not accustomed to in my typical day-to-day -day life. So I met some really, really cool people who had either done some hiking themselves, and I'm talking about people in town. You know, so people who are familiar with hikers and want to talk with you and chat with you about your trip. And, you know, they probably have their own stories to tell, which is always really cool. Also meeting some of the trail angels in these towns. And trail angels are people who want to help you with a ride to and from the trail. Or maybe they'll let you shower at their place. They might give you some hot food, that kind of thing. Truly angels uh, of the trail. And they always have just some of the most fun stories to share, whether it's about other hikers or their own trip. So 
there was really, I like to say there was never a dull day on the PCT, whether it was just something like weather or a new person to meet. It was so much going on. As for your fundraiser for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault, did you reach your goal? I did. In fact, I exceeded my goal, which is so, so awesome. I really saw my friends and family and community on and off the trail come together and help donate to my fundraiser, which was just so, so awesome to see. So I was hoping to raise a dollar for every mile on the PCT, which would have been $2,650 for the 2,650 miles. But I ended up raising 3090 which is so awesome. So exceeded what I wanted, what my goal was. And so, yeah, the, the fundraiser is complete. I, I did it. I'm, I'm really happy about that. Did you discuss your fundraising with anyone on the trail? Were people receptive to your advocacy? Yeah, it was definitely something I'd bring up every now and then. And I never had any pushback on it or people kind of asking weird questions about it or anything like that. In fact, people were extremely supportive and uh, some people from my quote-unquote trail family or people that I was hiking with, a lot of them donated as well, which is something I would have never asked of them, but it is so generous of them that they did. I feel like what I learned on trail is that PCT hikers or through hikers, they really, you really have each other's backs. And even with other people who were hiking for their own kind of fundraiser for some other cause, people were really receptive to that as well. You know, you have to be pretty passionate about something to be hiking that far for it. And people see that and that's reflected in what you're doing. So I would definitely say for my fundraiser that people were supportive 110%, which was great to see. So the last time we spoke, I believe you mentioned being interested in the Appalachian Trail. Is that next up in your plans? I could definitely see myself doing that. I think for the next bit here, definitely going to be enjoying the comforts of life, sleeping in a bed, taking hot showers, all that good stuff. But even just a few days back from the trail, I already want to get back out there. I miss being outside. So, yeah, I could definitely see myself trying to conquer the AT or maybe the CDT and possibly a triple crown in the future. Doing all three. We'll see. (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? So when I set out in choosing this fundraiser for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault, part of my mission in doing that was to empower other women and to empower non-binary people to go out and attempt their own outdoor experience or adventure. And I think part of why I felt like it is so important for people like us, women, to set examples for other women is because I feel like a lot of doubt can be cast upon us before we do this kind of thing. And I noticed that with other female hikers on the trail where they got questions like, you know, are you sure you don't want to do that with a man? Or aren't you going with your boyfriend? Or if they were with their boyfriend, then think people thinking that, you know, they were kind of tagging along almost as a favor to their boyfriend, which is just kind of crazy, some of the things that people would say or ask or think. And I think even if you brush those kinds of comments aside, 
they can really stack up and start to build a lot of doubt in your mind and maybe make you think, you know, can I actually do this? Or how safe is this actually for me to do? And maybe should I go along with somebody else? And one thing that I have really gained from doing the Pacific Crest Trail is a huge sense of confidence, which is extremely empowering at the end of the day, because what I've learned is that I can rely on myself. Through this hike, I've proved to myself that I can trust my own self to get me through anything mentally or physically, because I proved to myself what I'm capable of, and I what I thought I could do. And so I think, I guess my message within all of that is that only you can set your own limits. So no matter what people think you can and cannot do, at the end of the day, only you can decide that for yourself. And I would encourage other people to, if they have some sort of big dream, whether that's an outdoor trip or through hike or whatever it may be, to at the very least try it because I learned like I said, that I was capable of more than I thought. So you'll never know if you don't try. So I guess that's my, my overall message, uh, kind of tying that back to the fundraiser as well, because that was on my mind quite a bit. And I was pleasantly surprised with how all of that worked out. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Emily. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. We call it the Cardinal Call. This week, co-producer Gavin Escott and campus news editor Liam Barron discuss a controversial survey sent to student-athletes and the impacts it has had on campus so far. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hewan Lim. In recent years, a tide of Republican-sponsored legislation has targeted transgender athletes across middle, high school, and college sports. The legislation aims to prohibit athletes from participating in gendered sports that align with their gender identity on the grounds transgender athletes have an unfair advantage. This issue was renewed in Madison last week when UW-Madison's athletic body, RecWell, sent out a survey to student-athletes asking questions critics say are inflammatory and biased about transgender athletes' participation in club sports. Today, we're joined by our campus news editor, Liam Barron, to discuss the survey and the impact it had on campus. Liam, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Gavin. Last Monday, RecWell sent out a survey to club and intramural athletes that includes some questions considered to be transphobic. What was the survey? And why was it considered controversial? So the survey is being sent out by Dr. Austin Anderson of University of Indiana. He's done a lot of research on college athletics, um, particularly trans athletes as well. And the survey is part of a 10 university-wide survey, and it was sent out by UW Madison's Recwell athletic body to club and intramural athletes. And the main reason it had caused some controversy was because of some questions.
questions that students found, as you said, transphobic. Particularly egregious to many students were some questions towards the end, which asked students to rank their agreement with statements that were considered by many to be transphobic. Statements like, do you strongly disagree or strongly agree with the idea that transgender women are really women? Stuff like that that had really affected students and made them feel very uncomfortable. Did students know prior to taking the survey that some of these questions would be somewhat transphobic? Were they given a disclaimer in any way? So there wasn't a transphobia warning in either the email that Reckwell sent or the webpage in the survey. On the introductory webpage to the survey, there was a warning about emotional discomfort. There was no specific transphobia warning, though. What's Reckwell's policy? Can trans athletes play in clubs that match their gender identity? Yeah, so Reckwell's policy is that transgender athletes are able to play on clubs that match their identity. That was clarified in a statement sent after this article's publication on Thursday, which, among other patients, included a link to Reckwell's gender equity policy. And this isn't just a hypothetical scenario. Reckwell does have athletes who are affected by the survey, and you talked to a couple of them. Yeah, so I had only spoken to one of them in particular, Emmett Lockwood. He is the chair of Madison's Associated Students of Madison Student Council Equity Committee. And the student government. Yes, yes, the student government at Madison. And so I had spoken to ASM. He is a water polo athlete. He had sort of broadly spoken about his experiences being a trans athlete and his reaction to the survey. He said that he was horrified by the survey and that as a trans athlete, he has had some difficulties both with uniforms and getting them approved by Reckwell and also from other athletes, not really from his team. He said that his team has been universally super supportive, super kind, but in dealing with other athletes from other schools, for example. Did he say the university had been supportive of him? He had said that because they had to approve um, his uniform, that has been a pretty constant battle and one that his club presidents have had to fight with Reckwell on. Now, this survey isn't happening in a vacuum. On Thursday, the Wisconsin legislator voted to pass three bills that limited the rights of transgender young people in Wisconsin. The bill bans doctors from providing gender-affirming health care to minors and bans transgender athletes from participating in sports that align with their gender identities. Liam, you talked to university officials. Was there any coincidence that the survey was sent out around this time? Kelly Tyrell, a media communications director for the university, had reached out to me in regards to an initial email I had sent to Reckwell to provide some clarification and say that there is no connection between what the legislature is currently doing and the fact that this survey was being sent out by Reckwell. I will say that I don't think the effects and the experience of, in many cases, testifying against that legislation, as Emmett had done himself, were lost on students as they were taking the survey and as they were debating its impacts. You mentioned Emmett's role as the ASM Equity and Inclusion Chair. Has Emmett done anything in his position recently in response to this survey? Yeah, so Emmett had told me as part of my reporting that ASM Equity was considering adding Reckwell as a non-enforcement body in a piece of legislation that they're calling a trans-sanctuary bill. It would do a few things, but broad is to establish lowest priority enforcement mechanisms for infractions related to trans identity. So stuff like trans athletics, gender-affirming medical care, that sort of thing, that the University and the University of Wisconsin Police Department would establish that as the lowest possible priority in terms of enforcing infractions. ASM is planning to hold 
poll to vote on that on October 25th. Is this enforceable, though? So UWPD had told the Cardinal that they wouldn't legally be beholden to the ASM bill if it passes, but that they are in alignment with its principles. They phrased it specifically as abiding by the principles they put forth for protecting transgender and non-binary individuals. Is there anything you learned over the course of your reporting that stood out to you? I think it was really interesting to look at a quarter of campus that maybe doesn't always get the attention and coverage that it deserves. It was really, really cool as an athlete myself to learn about the experiences of trans athletes, particular challenges and joys that they get out of being trans athletes. I mean, Emmett had said that being on the water polo team has been a source of community and that his teammates have all been, you know, super welcoming and that it's been overall a really great experience, but small issues or not small, but persistent issues continue to pop up and that's That's something that he's hoping to address as part of ASM Equity. After this survey was released and received some backlash, did the university comment on this at all? Yeah, so they had sent out a statement on Thursday afternoon in response to the feedback that they received on the survey. And they had essentially said that they apologized for how the language around the survey might have landed. They said the language in the survey wasn't their own and that it was an approval of its content and had reaffirmed their commitment to transgender athletes' equity in their gender equity policy in Reckwell. Liam. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Gavin. In other campus news, hundreds of students and community members held demonstrations this week in response to the escalating war between Israel and Hamas. Demonstrators at a candlelight vigil expressed solidarity with Israel, and supporters of Palestine called for the end of Israel's presence in the Palestinian territories. In an email Wednesday, Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin condemned Hamas and called on the campus community to express their views peacefully and respectfully. In other news, the University of Wisconsin System announced plans to implement a direct admissions program for eligible Wisconsin high schoolers. This program, which would go into effect next year, would grant students automatic admission to one or more UW System schools if they meet the qualifications set by the university. UW-Madison declined to participate in the program, telling the Cardinal the goal of the program was to grow enrollment at campuses that struggled with it, a problem Madison does not face. And in other news, the number one ranked Wisconsin women's volleyball team swept Maryland on Sunday afternoon in the best start in school history and setting a new NCAA record after winning 27 consecutive sets. The team, which won the national championship in 2021, will face Ohio State on Wednesday before facing number two Nebraska on Saturday. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg discusses the North Saw wet owl and the value of banding and tracking wild birds. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about northern saw-wet owls. They are the coolest owl. They're my favorite owl. Honestly, if I had to pick one, it's going to be the northern saw-wet. 
And I wanted to talk about them because it is their migration time right now. And there are a couple of places around the United States that track this little tiny diminutive bird's migration. And I had the chance to go to a raptor workshop this week here at Linwood Stations that is up in the Stevens Point area. And if you've never been to Linwood Springs Research Station, it is a really great place to visit. It's in central Wisconsin, so Stevens Point is about oh, an hour or so, hour and a half north of Madison. And it is a station that was actually established in 1988, and they have banded over 11,000 sawwet owls, these tiny little owls that are pretty much about, I would say, the third smallest in the Americas. So it's a little bit bigger than the elf owl and a little bit bigger than the long-whiskered owlet that's in Peru. But it is a an itty-bitty, I guess I would say, a size of a... A nice ice cream cone if you get an ice cream cone with a double scoop on it you know maybe about that they are the cutest little things that you almost never see and our wildlife center at Dane County Humane Society has actually only admitted 10 of them in the last 10 years so it's not very many that come through that are found sick or injured and I think it's likely because they are found mostly in older growth forest areas so they do breed across southern Canada and more the northern areas and western US and then they will go into central Mexico. But that mature forest is really, really important, and it seems to be more near water, like riverside, which is why in Stevens Point, in that area, you know, we're getting close to Wisconsin River habitat. There's some really great tracts of forest that are preserved out that direction. And so they seem to migrate from the northern parts of Wisconsin down south and can be found in places even in Illinois. So they don't have any ear tufts like our great horned owls do. They have a perfectly rounded head. They are itty bitty, only about four to six inches tall, depending on whether you have a male or a female. And then they also have these bright yellow eyes, sometimes ranging in different color from a darker yellow to a lighter yellow. But we got the chance to work with owls during a workshop. They do offer a raptor field techniques workshop once a year, usually in the fall months. So I happened to be one of the rehabilitators that was joining in on some of that training. One of the nights we caught 23 sawwet owls. And so to me to think, you know, 10 sawwets have been admitted to the Humane Society for rehabilitation in 10 years, but we caught 23 in one night. That was pretty incredible. What happens at a raptor station that is targeting a certain species for banding and to try to age them and figure out, you know, where they're migrating and how long they live, because that's what bands are very useful for. They set up a station where there's a bunch of nets called mist nets, certain sizes. It's like a basically a really tall, big volleyball net almost, except with smaller holes. And there are little kind of troughs, but we call them tremels. The the decks, decks are tremels is what I've heard them being called as. It's like a little pocket of soft mesh that they fly into and then they can't get out. Now, Linwood's research station does use a sound bait, meaning that they put on the call of a sawwet owl, which supposedly reason that they're called sawwet owls might be because of the sound of a saw sharpening against a whetstone. And I'm not going to lie, I tried researching that sound and all I can really find are knives sharpening on whetstones and I just don't see how that sound was applicable. And there's not actually a true consensus whether or not that was why they were named Northern Sawwet Owls. But anyways, it sounds like a kind of a car alarm beeping. It's hard to describe, but it's just a single monotone little beep, beep, beep. And they are kind of simple creatures in that way. So the sound goes off all night long. So they band from about 7 p.m. at night whenever it gets dark. And then they keep going until about 6 a.m. 
They have some interns, especially those associated with the UW-Stevens Point campus. They do a lot of wildlife ecology training there, and they hold down the station while catching owls. So we were able to go out, retrieve owls that would get captured in the nets. And then we would bring them inside to the research station to be able to age them, sex them, weigh them, take measurements on their wings and their tails, look at what kind of feathers were, you know, older feathers, which ones were newer feathers. And birds have this really cool thing. Most birds have a molt limit, meaning that there are some feathers that are retained or kept from one year to the next. And the difference in color and sun exposure and light to those feathers really makes them stand out. And you can see the differences in the age of the feathers and then therefore can make a really good accurate guess, I guess you could say, but an accurate informed decision about what age that owl is. There's a great abstract that was in 2019 that has been published as part of the Linwood Springs Research Station data confirming the different molt patterns of sawwit owls and being able to age them accurately based on, I think it's like 243 individual birds with less than 1% error, which I think is really great. So knowing that the way that we look at the wings and look at the older feathers, the newer feathers, really does accurately show their age because of banding records. So if a band is put on a bird and it was a baby this year and it lives, you know, five, six more years, then you can see those molt patterns change. And over time, all of that data is collected and that's how we know. So it's really important to have these types of stations and they do affect rehabilitators because we can also learn from those banding studies to figure out how old a patient is when it comes into rehabilitation. That can inform a lot of decisions, especially when we think of geriatric birds, birds that just as they get older, maybe decline in health or have you know other problems that might arise. It's a really crucial thing to have the partnership with people who are banding and researching how long the birds live and where they go so that we can make better informed decisions as rehabilitators. So anyways, 23 birds in one night, I thought was really great. Also was excited to see how many different males and females we had. Typically they attract more females with the baiting call rather than males. And it was just really fun to, you know, get together and learn from a whole bunch of different people about this one tiny diminutive owl who is just so cryptic that you almost never see them because they're out hunting at night. They'll have two meals of a mouse and then they're good. But they are, like I said, migratory. So they come through Wisconsin and the more of the southern parts of the state during the October, November kind of time period. And you can visit this raptor center in Stevens Point. There are ways to you know, register for field trips and things. I know I went there when I was a young undergrad and working at UW-Madison in the wildlife ecology department as a student. And it was probably one of the more influential places for me to fall in love with birds. Highly encourage people to check it out, check out banding stations, maybe research a little bit about sawwet owls, and just appreciate that they are here in Wisconsin. So be on the lookout, especially if you're in an area with mature forest. They sometimes do hit windows, sometimes hit by cars, and we are here to help them as rehabilitators. And we are also helped by banding services like Linwood Stations who do research on them. So very, very cool. That has been our segment today. Thank you so much for listening here on WORT. We were talking about northern sawwet owls today. And if you have any questions about these types of birds, give us a call at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center at 608-287-3235. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke to Chief Program Officer Angela Titus. She shared details about a temporary history makerspace, also in downtown Madison, and a statewide history makers tour. Joining us once again to tell us all about it is Wisconsin Historical Society Chief Program Officer Angela Titus. Angela, welcome back to the 8 o'clock buzz. 
Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be back here. So what is a history maker? A history maker is all of us. We all make history every day. And I think that's one of the things we really want to communicate with this tour is in every corner of the state and every local community, whether it's an individual or groups of people have created momentous events in the state's history. So whether you're an elementary school student or a history buff like yourself, you are a history maker. And that's what we aim to show everyone. So the tour, let's start with that. Yeah. Um, when does that start and what, what communities are you visiting? So the tour kicked off last month in September. And so we are starting in south central Wisconsin, which includes Dane County and hitting all the major cities here and some of the smaller ones. And then we'll be continuing to go around the state by region, spending about six months in each region doing some intensive work. And then by the end, probably early 2027 is when we'll wrap it up, but we'll be hitting every county in the state and going from one corner to the next to the next. So these are presentations, workshops, seminars, what, what, what happens? So it's actually a combination of different ways that we can communicate the story that the state is so rich in. So it could be a pop-up exhibit. It could be an author talking about something they've written about, doing some signings. It might be a special panel presentation. Could potentially be a collection display. We have a lot of really incredible things in the collection that often are sitting tucked away very safely in our state archive preservation facility. So thinking about which collection items can we bring out, you know, pending, of course, things like lighting conditions, safety. I was just going to say, are, yeah. are, does, are your climate conditions. Does this idea drive your archivist a little nuts? Like you're going to take what and put it in a truck and drive yes. it to Ashland? That's exactly right. So it's a, it's definitely a, a conversation about what they feel comfortable letting leave the, the building and for how long, frankly. So, you know, there are many things we can take out and have an evening where we display them. Maybe there's a reception or an opportunity to talk to our curatorial team. And then they take them back and put them safely away. Um, in safe. So we had an open house actually this past week and we had some collection items like the shawl that Lincoln wore on his inauguration. We had one of the AMX cars that were made here. Those things were out. People could see them and they had minders. People were sitting very close, <laughs> making sure not too many people got too close. But, you know, you, it's still pretty amazing to see those items out. So a little bit of everything on so, the tour. So as you travel around the state, are these presentations or exhibits uh, tailored to those particular communities? So if I went to, say, Bayfield County, would there mm -hmm. be some exhibits talking about the history of Bayfield? Potentially, but not necessarily. So it depends on what those local communities want. And sometimes there are things that don't make it to those communities that we'd like them to see. There, there might be stories that, you know, are not of their community, but they're of the state. And so they would like to see that. So one of our most popular exhibits is actually about the fair housing marches in Milwaukee, and it gets booked all over the state. We have an exhibit on LGBTQ plus history that we launched last year that's been extremely popular in every corner of the state. So in some cases, it's different. And in, in some cases, it is celebrating that local history. What we've been doing is working with each of our partners in the regions to see what they want. So we make some offerings, they may have ideas, we collaborate. And I think that's one of the most exciting things for us is the ability to collaborate with our local history affiliates and other partners like libraries, etc. in the local communities and, and see what they want, what they think will be most interesting. 
So let's turn to the uh, History Maker Center or History Maker Space. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I hear the term Maker Space. I'm so impressed with your <laughs> command of these, <laughs> these labels we came up with, Brian. Well, when I hear the term Maker Space, yes. I, I think of people, you know, uh, building things, yes. you know, in a community space. Is that what's happening here? Or are we talking more yeah. about people who have made or are making history? All of those. See, like every question you ask me, I'm going to say yes, A and B. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is both. So there, the Makerspace has a classroom and also has a combination program and retail space. And in the classroom, what we're doing with the kids is much more hands-on and interactive. So we have an education collection that they can touch, you know, not like the ones we talked about earlier, and different supplies. And so what they're doing is they're making their own exhibits, and the kids have been loving it. So we have a huge wall that's magnetic, and they can put together their exhibit with artifacts on the walls, and they write their own labels, which are highly entertaining. And they just get really hands-on, and the idea is to continue to prototype those types of educational content. So what does a child-authored exhibit <laughs> of history look like? What, like it's, can it's, you give us an example? It's actually pretty impressive. The, um, there was one uh, from a school that came in recently, and it was all about indigenous artifacts and talking about the importance of each of those artifacts and what they think the story is behind the artifacts. It's a lot about curiosity and inquiry for them to uncover the story, not for us to push information out to them. The idea is for them to really uncover and discover and tell their own impressions and stories. So ranging, you know, the labels range from very erudite to, I think this is really cool. (laughs) What better? So so that's what's happening in the classroom space. Uh And it will continue throughout the three years. Lots of interactive hands-on, making their own everything. And some of it's for fun, some of it's educational. And then on the other side, We've got, you know, in the retail store, we're featuring Wisconsin makers and artisans. A lot of the goods in the retail store are Wisconsin-made items. So depends on, you know, the day of the week. But in general, the idea is to, to get really hands-on. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the new History Maker Space at the corner of South Pinckney Street and East Washington Avenue on Madison's Capitol Square. For more information, you can go to wisconsinhistory.org. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, Hewan Lim, and 8 o'clock buzz host Brian Standing. Dave Lawrenson engineered this show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you keep up with your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.